Good morning. Uh, Happy Easter. Let me pray. Our Father, we uh, remember now that Jesus died, uh, not just for us to remember, but to give us uh, forgiveness from sin and through his resurrection, eternal life. And so may this truth uh, now that we hear get into our hearts beyond an intellectual understanding, beyond a cultural understanding. We ask that today it would actually truly change who we are from the inside out. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's a few unusual things about Easter, and it's not just that the masks are off, and it's not just that my cat was busted eating the kids' chocolate this morning. Would you believe it? I didn't know cats had a taste for Easter chocolate, but ours do. And it's uh, not just that it's called Good Friday. I was having a chat with my niece over the phone this week, and my niece asked me, she goes to a Catholic school, she said, why is it called Good Friday, not Sad Friday? I said, well, that's a really good question. She's very young. Uh, But there's something that's very unusual about Easter, and it's that, and I think my niece was getting closer to the point, so very something unusual about Easter is that because of what happened to Jesus, people believed in him. People gave their lives over to his lordship. They said, I'll stop ruling my own life. I'll believe in someone who's just died and trust in him, no matter what. And so I want to look with you this morning from three different perspectives. Uh, that we get in our uh, Bible reading today, three different perspectives on what happened to Jesus and how that impacted the people that it happened to. And this, it's through three very unusual conversion stories. Three very unusual conversion stories. The first is the centurion. Uh, you see that in your text uh, that there are Roman soldiers and a centurion, the leader of a Roman soldier, centurion meaning uh, coming from the word, uh, Latin word century, or meaning 100. So he leads 100 soldiers and, and his men were watching, they were overseeing what happened to Jesus and something happens to them after Jesus dies. Now, it's very interesting because a centurion typically speaking, would not have come from the local land. He would have been brought in from a different nation to be working in Jerusalem at that time. They were to keep the peace. We must remember that uh, in Jerusalem in the first century, it was a conquered nation. And so the Roman soldiers were there to make sure that there wasn't any more uprisings. And there had been uprisings by the Jewish people in the past. The Roman soldiers were there to keep the peace. They really didn't care about the Jewish religion at all. They would have followed the gods of their own lands and pretty much every other nation and culture at that point followed many gods. You know, they had the god of the sun, they had the god of the moon, they had the god of fertility, they had the god of love, they had the god of death. They had many different gods and they would have worshipped them and made their sacrifices and offering to those gods. And so uh, this centurion and the soldiers would have been what they call pagans. They worshipped other gods. These were professional soldiers too, so their livelihood was killing. In fact, they were the ones who were to make sure that the job of crucifying Jesus and the men either side of him was done properly. They would have been there when Jesus was mocked, 
when he was flogged, when he had, was given a crown of thorns upon his head, a mock scepter being a reed, and he was beaten with it, and a scarlet, a scarlet tunic was put upon him, which was probably taken from one of the Roman soldiers themselves. They would have been there, witnessing all of these things, not caring one little bit. This is just another condemned man who's taking a punishment that he deserves, or so they thought. And he would have been very comfortable in his beliefs too. He would have been happy with where he was at. He was the, the, the centurion in particular was had well advanced in his career. He was successful at his job. It was quite an important position to be overseeing the public crucifixion of particular people. And so he was settled within himself, didn't really care that much about the Jewish religion or this figure who, there was a sign there in front of him saying, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, written in every common language. Now this is really interesting for you and I because when we uh, hear the news about Jesus and Easter rolls around every year, there's a lot of people that don't care, don't really know, aren't really interested. And, and you might have come along this morning and be just... Just come along because it's Easter. And that's okay. But there's something that happens to people when they are confronted by the reality of what Jesus has done that takes them out of being comfortable to being in awe. In awe. That's what we see in our text. In verse 54, it says... When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. Now that word awe is usually uh, from the Greek word phobeo, meaning fear or great fear. They were terrified. Something's happened here which is out of this world. What did they see? Well, the Roman soldiers who were there, they saw, as we see in our text, uh, darkness fall upon the land. It was in the middle of the day. This says between uh, the sixth hour and the ninth hour in the ancient times, that meant between 12 noon and 3 p.m. So in the height, when the sun is supposed to be at its height and the light is supposed to be its brightest, there was darkness everywhere. Now, the uh, prophets of the Old Testament foretold that on the day that God would come, to save his people, a great darkness would come upon the land during the day. Something supernatural would happen. Uh, in the Babylonian Talmud, which is one of the, uh, the religious writings of the time, it said that only a darkness would come upon the land when a particularly heinous sin was being committed, like the crucifixion of the Son of God. And so these Roman soldiers were witnessing something going on, a darkness coming upon the land, and they couldn't explain it. It was a supernatural darkness because something wrong was going on here. A death was occurring that shouldn't be. The other thing they would have noticed about Jesus on the cross and observed was the words that he said. Jesus said uh, these words in Aramaic and, uh, then in, and then it translated for us. In English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This king figure who says he's the son of God is somehow being separated 
from God. They didn't know what it meant, but they were witnessing it. Somehow God has been separated from God. Somehow, one part of the triune God is taking the penalty for sin and God the Father is turning away from Him. Lastly, they would have heard the great cry that Jesus made just before he died and yielded up his spirit. The cry, we actually don't get the word here in Matthew, but in the other Gospels, it's tetelestai in Greek and in English it's translated, it is finished. So there's a great darkness because of judgment for sin. There's someone who's being forsaken because of this darkness. And then a declaration, it is finished before this Jesus finally yields his spirit and releases himself to death. The centurion and his soldiers were watching and observing what was going on here. And then at that moment of Jesus' death, there's an earthquake, another supernatural sign. The rocks are split. It says that curtain in the Holy of Holies, the the center of the temple, the the place that only the priests can go on the Day of Atonement once a year in the Jewish religion. The curtain is torn from top to bottom, signifying that there is an entry point into the presence of God now through the death of Jesus. They're seeing the tombs opened. There's an uproar in the city and they're observing all of these things happening and it's starting to get inside their hearts. These Roman soldiers who really didn't have any interest, now it says they are filled with awe. Something has happened to them. Interestingly, uh, that same word uh, that's used for awe there is used when... Uh, Jesus and three of his closest disciples, Peter, James and John, a bit earlier in the book of Matthew, they went up to a mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's called that because Jesus was having a conversation with God the Father and Jesus is transformed just for a moment into uh, bright white clothing. And they sort of see him in his glory and they fall down before him because up until that point, the glory of God the Son, Jesus, had been concealed and yet suddenly they see it and it uses this same word, they were in awe or they were filled with fear in his presence. What is going on here? Matthew records that the centurion and his soldiers realised what was going on because God had revealed himself to them. One of the fascinating things about Christianity is that it's not so much that you discover God It's that he reveals himself to you. And it sort of comes upon you all at once. For those that have been converted and believe in Jesus, you'll realize suddenly it came upon you and you realize that he was after you all along. You had to turn to him, but you realize that he was turned towards you first. Something happened to the centurion and his soldiers that made them say at the end, truly, this was the Son of God after his death. Okay, let's have a look at another perspective. Let's have a look at the perspective of the women. In verse 55, uh, we see that there were many women present at Jesus' death. Not just a couple, 
many. Jesus had a lot of women who were his disciples, his followers, and it says that they actually financed uh, a lot of the ministry that Jesus and his followers were doing. So they were kind of bankrolling it, which is very interesting. Uh, These uh, women, it says, ministered to Jesus. They were people who worked with Jesus. They were his co-laborers. They were people who were sharing the good news about the kingdom of God coming to earth. They were the people who were sharing and working with Jesus' ministry here on earth. Interestingly though, when Jesus' closest followers, the 12 disciples, abandoned Jesus, these women stayed. When uh, there was a great fear that would have risen up because if Jesus is getting crucified you know, for saying the things they did. If you're associated with him, there's a sense of, well, there's guilt by association. Maybe we'll be crucified too. Maybe we'll be persecuted too. But no, what happened? The women stayed. Now, what do these women see that kept them there? So we're getting the perspective now of people who know Jesus, people who, unlike the centurion, are not sort of strong in the world and settled in themselves, and sort of come under a great fear. But these women have been following Jesus for a long time, and now they see their Saviour die, but yet they won't let him go. What kept them there? Well, when they saw this darkness come, they knew it was the judgment of God coming. When they heard Jesus cry out these words, they would have recalled that Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. They would have recalled that Jesus said, I came to die and to give life by the ransom of my body. They'd have recalled that what Jesus was doing when he cried out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he was taking the consequence of sin upon himself. That the way that all of humanity has rejected God, that Jesus himself was receiving that on the cross, they would have realized that that was what was going on. And they would have heard him cry out, it is finished. Or in the ancient uh, world, that was uh, meaning the debt is paid. It was an accounting term. They would have known that Jesus had actually paid the cost for sin himself. And then given up his spirit as he cried out that last time. They would have seen their God dying for them and in their place. And yet they stayed. Something happened to them which goes beyond ordinary uh, human reactions. Ordinary human reactions would be, you know, you would be terrified and run away, and that's what the disciples did. They sort of got out of there as quickly as they could. An ordinary human reaction is when you see someone die, you sort of give up at that point. And whilst they wouldn't have been able to articulate it in their minds, something had gotten into their soul. And we see it breaking out when the curtain in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, is torn from top to bottom. We see it when the tombs are opened. Again, another supernatural event. It's like the power that Jesus had to take sin upon himself and fully pay for it is now spreading out like a shockwave all over Jerusalem. Tombs are literally being opened. An overflow of what is going to happen at the end. People will rise from death into life. And that shockwave got into the hearts of these women. 
A scholar, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, describes what was going on in the hearts of these women, it says. They were hopeless, disappointed, bereaved, heartbroken, but the love he had created in those hearts for himself could not be quenched. Even by his dying could not be overcome. Even though they were disappointed, could not be extinguished. Even though the light of hope had gone out and over the sea of their sorrow, there was no sighing wind that told of the dawn. They knew that they had to stay near to Jesus, but they didn't know why. They knew that when the priests and the soldiers gathered together to you know, stop Jesus' disciples from taking the body of Jesus, that they would sit opposite and just wait and see what happened. They couldn't really explain why they were there, but they were there because the truth about what Jesus had done and gotten into their soul, they realized this is the place to be. Now, this is very important for people who are experiencing suffering. One of the most common um, Objections to Christianity is if God is real, well, why does he allow suffering? Another objection is, well, if God is love, then why doesn't he just end all suffering? And so these two objections we sort of put up in our minds sometimes and we go, well, the, the true God that the, the, the Bible represents either doesn't love us that much or he can't be all-powerful because he doesn't seem to stop what what's wrong in the world. And yet, on the cross, we see not that happening, but a God totally expressing himself in love. When Jesus cried out these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually taking the fullness of hell upon himself. You know, a lot of people, when they're uh, in a extreme pain or in their last moments they feel like their life flashes before their eyes it feels like a very long time passes in a very short time Jesus was doing a once off unique event in the history of the world he was taking the full consequence and penalty for sin which is death and separation from God upon himself in a moment of time he was taking an eternity of suffering upon himself in a moment of time we heard it read out earlier, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What did he give his only son to do? To die. To die, to take that consequence for sin, that penalty for sin upon himself. An eternity in a moment of time. And only because his shoulders were the shoulders of the Son of God could he bear it. And he was conscious. He was there in that moment, taking the fullness of what a humanity that have rejected him. And so when we see that, when we hear the cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see a God who loves us to the depths, the utter depths. There is no further he could have gone. There is no further he could have gone. We also see the authority of Jesus, the great power of Jesus here as well. Because notice that he yielded up his spirit once it was done. They didn't take his life from him. He gave it up. And he only gave it up once the full consequence was taken. Once that moment in time when he would receive it all happened, at that very moment, 
Jesus yielded up his spirit and said, it is finished, it is complete. And so for suffering people, the Bible tells us and we see that God not only loves us, but is willing to go to every length for us and to take the worst of the worst, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, even an eternal amount for us. That's how far he's willing to go to end suffering. And so the truth of what these women had experienced, though they were devastated, they were clinging on to Jesus because he had gone to the uttermost lengths for them. They really had that go deep into their heart. When, uh, when my dad was having cancer treatment in his last uh, weeks of his life, he used to recite uh, the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. And he used to say it over and over again because he had this great trust that was ignited by God's word and what Jesus had done for him, that even with his looming death, that his good shepherd would not depart from him. Why could he have that? Why could he have that utter hope and utter trust? Because the Bible tells us that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The Bible tells us that Jesus is this good shepherd who will go to utter lengths to save his people and to grant to them a place of eternal life with him. And so even in a moment of suffering and darkness, even when all seems lost, clinging to Jesus is the right and good thing to do because he has gone to the uttermost lengths for us. Finally, we look to Joseph of Arimathea. Very interesting character, Joseph. It says, uh, not in this gospel, but in John's gospel, that Joseph of Arimathea was a, a man who was a disciple of Jesus secretly because he feared the Jews. He was a secret disciple of Jesus up until this point. He hadn't sort of announced himself. He'd probably heard what Jesus was doing, but he was a very wealthy man. He probably had heard Jesus teaching uh, about it's easier for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He was fearful and wealthy. He would have been well-to-do, had a good position in society. He sort of was able to get to the governor at the time, Pilate, and actually ask for Jesus' body. So he had enough status to get in uh, an audience with the governor. And yet somehow, something in his heart had changed. The fear had gone. He was a disciple secretly until this point when he asks for the body of Jesus. What happened? What happened to him? What happened that he was willing to set aside his wealth? I mean, he even spends money to put Jesus in the tomb. Spends a lot of money. What happened to Joseph of Arimathea that he was willing to set aside his wealth and willing to overcome fear to say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'll make sure he's buried properly in a proper tomb? 
what happened to him. Uh, much later in the Bible, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see the Apostle Paul make an interpretation of what Jesus did in regards to wealth on the cross. It's a very beautiful statement. It's 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Let me read it out for you. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus is the wealthiest person that the world has ever seen. It's not Elon Musk. It's not Jeff Bezos. It's not whoever else is sort of trying to climb the ladder, Bill Gates, it used to be. No, Jesus is the most wealthy person in the world, and he always has been. And all the riches of heaven, the ownership of the whole universe and everything in it, and what did he do? He lowered himself by becoming a human being and entering humanity. He became a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus sacrificed his great wealth and his great authority and humbled himself to serve humanity by giving his life as a ransom for many. Jesus became utterly poor in every sense of it. He was destitute. He didn't have any uh, possessions now. The soldiers had gambled over them and taken them. He was abandoned by his heavenly Father. Jesus was totally uh, with nothing left whatsoever in the world now. Even his followers, his closest followers abandoned him. The women were at a distance. There were just Roman soldiers looking over him and people mocking him. Jesus gave up everything and became utterly poor and yet he did that to share the great riches of heaven with us. And so that truth somehow got into Joseph of Arimathea's heart and changed him. It's uh, quite fascinating, the story of C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis was a man who was a devout atheist, and then he was sort of hanging out with some Christians, and then he became an agnostic, and he was really fighting becoming a Christian. He didn't want to become a Christian, but he felt like God was after him. This is how he writes about his experience. He says, People who are naturally religious find difficulty in understanding the horror of such a revelation. Amiable agnostics will cheerfully talk about man's search for God. To me, as I was then, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. As in, he didn't realize that God was really after him all along. And C.S. Lewis famously said he was the most reluctant convert in all of England when he finally surrendered to God. And yet that very same thing happened to Joseph of Arimathea when he witnessed what Jesus had done, when when he heard about the curtain being torn from top to bottom and the tombs opening. It changed him on the inside. And we know it changed him on the inside because suddenly fear was not a problem. Suddenly, his wealth was used for what? To buy a tomb for Jesus. His wealth was used for Jesus. You know, one of the biggest battles for Australians is our wealth because it is one of the strongest blockers to true faith in Jesus. Jesus said it for us, didn't he? 
You know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. We're a nation of wealthy people in many and varied ways. And yet we might be rich in this world and yet we are poor towards God. What would change a rich and wealthy person's heart? To see an even richer, an even greater, an even more majestic person lay down everything, not just for anyone, but for you personally. And so Joseph of Arimathea had been secretly following Jesus for a long time. But this time he realized what Jesus had done, he'd done for him. And so it changed him from the inside out. And you know that you're a Christian when you let go of those things you hold most dearly to you for Jesus' sake. You know that you're a Christian when your money doesn't rule you anymore. It's not your sense of security anymore, but you're willing to invest it in Jesus and set it aside. You don't fear what would happen to your status if you became a Christian. No, you're willing to put your hand up and say, I'm one of his because he died for me. And so the truth then for the centurion is though he was strong in the world but far from God, he had to become weak and filled with fear to become a Christian. But he realized that Jesus had become weak for him. And so he didn't need his strength anymore. He needed a strong God who was willing to go to the uttermost depths for him. We see these women who'd followed Jesus for a long time. They come to trust and believe in him. And even though their minds couldn't understand it, their souls knew that they would not be abandoned. And so they were the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Though they saw and were experiencing great suffering, They clung to him in the midst of it because they knew that he had bound up eternal life in himself. And Joseph of Arimathea, well, the wealth wasn't in the way anymore because he saw the great riches of God laid down for his sake. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for these witnesses of Jesus, of what he's done. The truth has come through in your word I ask that you would touch our hearts with this truth, that we would see what they saw and experience what they experienced. And we can't do that ourselves, and so we ask for you to do it. For you to invade our hearts in such a way that it changes us and makes us people in the image of you, our God and Saviour. And we give thanks in your name. Amen.